chapter 2 uh, of Ecclesiastes. It's really a continuation of what we looked at in chapter 1. Chapter 1 was that this is where we're going, and chapter 2 is just diving uh, right into this. And Solomon started uh, chapter 1 with the question, what does man gain uh, from all of his toil in this world? Remember, he's looking for something that will last, something that will fundamentally change how life functions, the vanity, the breath-like nature of life. He's looking for a way out. And we learned that last week that all of us, for in, in some ways, search for that. All of us look for the good life, something that will make this all worthwhile. And it is that search that echoes that paradise lost, that when we are removed from God's presence, there's this hole in the center of us. There's this desire for God himself and the goodness of his presence. And so we spend our lives toiling and searching, for as Solomon puts it, gain. Something that will bring meaning and satisfaction to life. For example, I remember in high school, and even before high school, uh, my life revolved around basketball. I know you're going to be shocked that a guy my height would play basketball. But I did. And my identity was often wrapped up in it. I spent hours upon hours practicing, weightlifting, and playing. My life was all about when was basketball season going to resume? When was the next game? How could we win? And you know what? My senior year in high school, we were pretty good. We were. At one point, we were ranked in the top ten in the state. Um, we won our conference. I made the all-conference team. I led the team in rebounds, blocked shots, second in scoring. But we had one goal as a team. We wanted to go state. Our school never went to state tournament. We wanted to make it there. And we got within one game of it as the one seed, and we lost. All that toil, all that striving, and we came up one game short. Now I know what you're probably thinking at this moment. Levi, no one cares about your high school triumphs and failures. Exactly. Exactly. The trophies and awards and plaques I have now gather dust in the garage. And Emily's like, can't we get rid of these? And I'm like, no. <laughs> Not yet. I can't get rid of them yet. Because we all look for gain in the different good things of creation. I want you to hear that. Good things. Basketball was not the problem. Basketball was not sinful. But when we look to limited, finite things, and we try to expect infinite payoff from them, we've got our orders all mixed up. It's the lie that we often don't want to face, and it's the lie that moves us so much of our marketing today. If you get this product, it will satisfy, it will fundamentally change your life. I kid you not, I really saw an advertisement that said, one bar of soap changed my life. We laugh, but that is our consumerism today, isn't it? We barely blink at it when we see it on the TV or the Internet. And this is really where we're going to pick up the story today. Solomon has given us his main point. He's searching for vain, but all he gets is vanity of vanities, breath of breath. Right? He's striving after the wind. He tries to grasp it, and he gets nothing uh, in return. And today, he's going to dive headfirst into that search. He's going to go throughout different areas of life, looking for gain, and he's going to come up short. And really, the search starts in chapter 1 of verse 16, where Solomon turns first to education, to knowledge, 
into wisdom. He says this, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also was but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So if you remember the story of Solomon, he went before the Lord and he asked for one thing. He said, give me wisdom. And the Lord gave him not only wisdom, but everything else that a king could want or have. So much so that we can say, besides Christ and before Christ, that this is the wisest person who ever lived. And yet, his wisdom leads him to despair. He sets off on this search for gain and happiness and satisfaction, and he starts with knowledge and wisdom. Basically, as one commentator puts it, he enrolled in Jerusalem University. I'm going to study and I'm going to find gain through the life of the mind. I can educate myself into meaning. But this too was nothing but a striving after the wind. He gets nothing but a fistful of air. And we are sold education in a hundred different ways today as the cure-all to everything in society. If we could just overcome our own ignorance or our own misinformation, everything would be better. And we literally spend billions and billions and billions of dollars a year on the educational complex. And our education for all that money and all that striving and toil, has devolved into deconstructing reality, providing safe places, and coloring books for our kids. A striving after the wind. Students are told that they must go to college if they're going to have a good, successful life. They must accumulate huge amounts of student debt, student loan debt, for all for a degree that, by every measure, provides less and less than of generations past. Now, this is coming from a guy who, hopefully, Lord willing, this spring, will earn his doctoral degree. So I know the value of a good education. I also know the trappings of elitism and bad education that is driven by propaganda and agenda. But either way, whether you get a good education or a bad one, Solomon wants you to hear it cannot provide gain. It cannot provide lasting satisfaction. And in, in fact, he says the more he learns the greater his vexation gets. And I study theology and scripture, and the more I study it at a higher level, I know that there are volumes this thick on every minute detail in the Bible, and I can't read them all. I can't be an expert in all of them, and I get frustrated, because I would like to know more. But there is no end to the writing of all of these books. And so education and wisdom fail the test. And Solomon moves on. Starting in chapter 2, he turns to pleasure to parties, to entertainment. Maybe these things will be the key to unlocking gain. He tries to drink away the numbness that is going on in his life. He writes, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this is also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. So Solomon dives in intentionally in somewhat of a controlled way into a form of hedonism. He's going to try to get as much pleasure 
as he can get out of life. Maybe that will satisfy him. Maybe that will be enough. But it isn't. This is a path that many go down, especially today. We even have terms for it today. FOMO, fear of missing out. I've got to be at the latest event, the latest party. That will keep me from noticing how unsatisfying it all is in the silence. We can do this in many ways, whether it be substance abuse, always being on the go, always being busy, constantly entertaining ourselves. It is says that the meaning it has been said that the meaninglessness of our modern society has been responded to with two different paths. There's the European path where they looked at life as an atheist, as a naturalist, and I read you some of these quotes in our in our last series that they looked at life being nothingness, life being without meaning, and they faced it with this cold realism. Yeah, life's nothing, and we're going to just look at it. We're going to stare into the abyss. It's pretty much what Europe did. In America, eh, we didn't want to do that. We turned to comedy and entertainment. We laughed at it. We looked at the nothingness, and we made a sitcom out of it. The most popular sitcom in American history is Seinfeld, or Seinfeld a show about nothing and we'll laugh about it the whole time there's no point to this show because there's no point to life and it's funny and we move on and that's where solomon goes he tells a joke he tries to ignore it but it doesn't really work again in those moments of silence between the laughs between the parties he knows it's just vanity so he moves on to the next stop the next search maybe achievement Maybe achievements and great works will do it. Verses 4 and 5. He said, I made great works. I built houses, planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. Solomon had many great works, both secular and religious. Solomon literally was the one to build the temple of God in Jerusalem. He was there as the Spirit of God descended upon the temple. And yet, in a few generations, that temple will be looted. In a few more generations, it will be burned to the ground. Many a successful man has tried to find gain through their great works, to build their own empire. And we will see some of this with the Olympics starting this week. You will literally have men and women who will dedicate their entire lives to seeing who can go down a hill full of snow on two sticks. And they will spend their entire life making sure that they can be the fastest one down that hill. And we'll watch and we'll be inspired by human achievement. And it's there. You know what? No one's going to care in a few years. It's just vanity. The famous actor and comedian Jim Carrey said something that summarizes all of this. He was being introduced over the loudspeaker at the Golden Globes, the award given out for the best movies and television shows. And they introduced him as the two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey. And he sarcastically chimed in. goes, I am the two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey. You know, when I go to sleep at night, I don't just, I'm not just a guy going to sleep. I'm two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey, getting some well-needed shut-eye. And he continues, when I dream... I dream of being three-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey because then I would be enough and I could stop this terrible search for what I know ultimately won't fulfill me. But these are important, these awards. And everyone laughed. 
He points out what all of us know in the end, that none of these things are, bring ultimate satisfaction and gain. If you go around to any college, university, or building, you'll often see plaques on the side of walls that most people walk right on by. I like to stop and read them, and there'll be some inscription, some dedication to somebody that nobody remembers anymore. They gave some amount of money so that this thing could be built. And no one really cares. We want to find something, maybe some great work. Maybe we'll make some impact that will outlast us. Johnny Cash did a cover song by Nine Inch Nails, and his cover's way better. It's called Hurt, and in it he says this. He says, you can have it all. You can have my empire of dirt. It's just nothing. Breath of breaths, chasing after the wind. So he moves on to the next thing. Wealth. Great works didn't do it. Maybe, maybe money and possessions will do it. Verse 6. I made for myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. Solomon was not just renowned for his wisdom, not just for building the temple, but he was filthy rich. He had gold, he had silver, he had diamonds, he had jewels, as if they were nothing during his reign. He was more wealthy than any of us can imagine. In comparison, relatively speaking, we're talking about Elon Musk, Bill Gates, and Jeff Bezos type of rich. That's how rich he was. And he says, it didn't work. It wasn't it. Jim Carrey, again, on another occasion, said this. He says, I think everybody, everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they, that they can see this is not the answer. It's like, I have it all. It doesn't work. Very Ecclesiastes-like of him. So whatever it is you think, whatever it is you like, fill in the blank. If I had, my life would be great. It won't. The object itself cannot provide that kind of satisfaction. It's a lie. So Solomon continues to one of our favorite activities to place at the center of meaning in today's world. He turns to sex. Second half of verse 8 says, I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of men. We are told in a million different ways that sexual freedom Expression and experience will make your life worth something. And so we indoctrinate ourselves and our kids into unnatural things, saying that this will make your life worth it. And Solomon says, no, it won't. Remember, we go back to when I taught on Genesis 2, sex isn't the problem, sex is a God-given gift. It's our distortion of it. If you think about Solomon for a minute, between his wives and his concubines, he had 1,000 women at his disposal. 1,000 to do whatever the king wanted. His harem would put the most notorious playboy of our day to shame. And he says, nope, didn't do it. And so he summarizes this search in verses 9 through 11, saying, what many a movie will tell you, he followed his own heart. So I became great, I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. All my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, 
For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was the reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was a vanity and a striving after wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. He starts the section off like he's Muhammad Ali. He's like, I'm, I was the greatest. I was the best. No one could top what I did in any of these areas. And yet, he descends into despair. He says, I, whatever my heart wanted, whatever my eyes saw, whatever I deemed was good, I took. And I enjoyed it. I had pleasure in it. But it didn't make a difference. This is the end result of doing whatever is right in your own eyes. And if we're honest, we've all been there. We've all thought that thing would do it. We have to ask ourselves this question, how long will we toy with that thinking? To steal an image from Christ, how long will we be like that dog who throws it all up, walks away two steps, comes back and decides to eat the vomit again, thinking this time it'll be different? Solomon returns empty-handed, and he thinks, how should, I, how should I evaluate this? How does this work out? He sees the limits and the benefits of wisdom. In verses 12 through 17, he said, So I turned to consider wisdom and the madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to them all. I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this is also vanity. For of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance. Seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten, how the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is a vanity and a striving after the wind. So he evaluates this search. He says, on the one hand, wisdom has benefits. It is better to be a wise man than to be a fool. For being wise is like having light. It's being able to have eyes in your head and to be able to see and to understand what is going on. Folly is just stupid and destructive. But there's a limitation, he notes, that both the wise man and the fool die. Both meet the same end. Both the rich and the poor, male and female, all ultimately die. And in this way, Death is that great equalizer. We are all equal when we're born, and we are all equal when we die. Death comes for us all. And the sad thing is, most of us, probably all of us, will not be remembered when it happens. You can think of the billions and billions of people who have populated this earth. How many from the past generations do you remember? Maybe a handful. You might even remember some of their names and have no idea what they did. When you die, when I die, the world will keep spinning, the sun will rise, your children will remember you. If you're lucky, your grandchildren will. If you're really lucky, your great-grandchildren will, but probably not. How many of you remember your great-grandparents? 
If you do, do you remember the generation before them? Probably not. And so wisdom recognizes that. That there is some value to it in this life, but ultimately, death comes. And so he slips into despair. He laments the vanity and the frustration of this reality in verses 18 through 23. He says, So I hated all my toil, in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This is also vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who will not toil for it. This is also vanity and a great evil. What has a man for all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath him or beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This is vanity. That's not your grandma's hallmark card Christianity right there. You should feel the frustration he has in life. This realistic wrestling he has with a fallen world. That even when he is successful, he knows the vanity will eventually catch up. He says, I'm going to leave this to someone, but there's no guarantee that that someone I'm going to leave it to won't be a fool and undo everything that I've done. So Solomon, his son, Rehoboam took over the kingdom and then it was split in two. And then within a few generations, they're all exiled. Everything he strove and worked for eventually amounted to nothing. So he focuses in on this vexation and he despairs. And again, like last week, we sit on the edge of ruin. Now, if you've been paying attention, you're like, Levi, you said this book increased your joy. Where is it? Don't, don't you see it in here? Levi's not somebody who just wants to wallow in depression. It's what comes next. These next two verses are the first good news in this book. It's where Solomon starts turning um, the corner. It's one of those sucker punches I re- referenced last week that can catch us by surprise. And even here, he will offend some of our Christian notions. One would think that as Solomon lines all of this up, he did all of this searching through pleasure, through hedonism, through wealth, through experiences, that he would get to the end of this and he would say, let's just get rid of all of it. Let's just cast it all away. Because if the materialism and the hedonism didn't work, maybe the holy way to living is to look down on those things, to look down at money, to look down at success and enjoyment and great works and sex. And that right there summarizes the entire monastic movement specifically marked in the Catholic Church with monks and nuns. If you really want to be holy, you got to get rid of all of this stuff from the world. And there are strains of that thinking in evangelicalism. And yet Solomon goes in the exact opposite direction. He doesn't say, get rid of all of that stuff. What does he say? He says, enjoy them. The problem is not the items, it's our hearts. It's going to those items and demanding something they can never give you. 
demanding from those things gain. Pay careful attention to verses 24 through 26. Solomon says, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This is also vanity and a striving after the wind. How are you to live in a world marked by vanity, marked by striving after the wind? You are to, mar- you are to live in joy. The solution is to find joy in your possessions, to find joy in your successes, to find joy in your pleasures, but to do so without demanding gain from those things. They are not the end goal of your life. They cannot fill the hole that God designed only him to fill. Some will misread what Solomon says here to be akin to the slogan, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But they couldn't be further apart. That slogan says, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die, because that's all there is. This is all there is to life, so just do those things, because that's all you get, and then you're going to be dead. Solomon says, do those things and enjoy them because they're given to you by God. Because there is something greater than those things are. In chapter 3, he'll make it even more explicit. He said, everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. This is God's gift to man. In chapter 2, he says, it's given to you by the hand of God. In chapter 3, he says, this is the gift of God given to to you. At the heart of this book are these twin ideas of gift versus gain. Most of chapter or all of chapter one and most of chapter two, Solomon is looking for gain from these things. And the solution is to stop demanding gain and to receive them as gifts from God. What kind of a difference does that make? Well when you treat something as an object of gain, you tend to find your meaning in it, multiply your sin in pursuing it, and you pervert good things, and that leads to more trouble, more vexation. And holiness, and I really want you to hear this, is, does not equal getting rid of those things. Rather, it is to take those things as they really are, gifts from God. So when you have something, you can either grip it, Like, I must have this. This is what my life is about. Or you can receive it with open hand from God as a gift that will give you no greater meaning in life, but that you can enjoy as a sign of the goodness of God. We enjoy these gifts because they come from God. They are not our vision. They are not the purpose of our life. God is, and God gives good gifts to his people to be enjoyed because they point to him. The holy man, the holy woman, does not look at money or possessions or humor or sex as evil or necessary evils or icky things. That's not holiness. We read this a few weeks ago, but in 1 Timothy 4, Paul tells us, 
that to look at the good gifts of God and to say that they are evil is the doctrine of demons, but that you are to receive them as good gifts with thanksgiving. So when you enjoy food, money, possessions, your spouse, you should enjoy them as gifts that point to something greater, something infinite, the goodness of God. Joy in the vanity is found in receiving good gifts from God. To have those things direct us to look unto him instead of just staring at them and say, give me meaning. They can't do it. Your joy will be greatly increased when you treat finite things as finite and the infinite God as infinite. If we can direct our hearts beyond the vanity and vexation of life, we can see that gain comes from God and he gives us gifts for our enjoyment. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that we would not be blinded by the things of this life, that we would not build our lives on the idea that getting stuff or accumulating experiences are all that there is, that we would not demand from the finite, infinite satisfaction, but rather, Lord, that we would receive these things as good and precious gifts from you, meant to be enjoyed, meant to be used for our good and your glory. So Lord, may you train our minds and our hearts to not build idols out of the things of this world, but to also not reject the good things you have given us, that our hearts would be softened to see your love, your goodness, and your provision in the things of this earth, and that through that, we would be drawn closer to you. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.